When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal some entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories some you've never heard before. I'm George Offman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget the free TuneIn app. We're there, too. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago landmark business since 1893. There's nothing like a Vienna hot dog or one of their Polish sausages, and their products are available coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and through Amazon. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by the Polina Market, Chicago's top purveyor of fine meats, poultry, fish, fresh, frozen prepared foods, wine, beer, and now serving fresh sandwiches. They've been a staple in the city since 1949. This week, we feature Chicago's premier hockey analyst and horse racing handicapper, Annie Olchek. Pat is, uh, I think people can tell the, rela- I hope, I hope people can tell the relationship that we have on the air, it's exactly the same off the air. Like that's what people want. They want honesty, they want humility, I think they want to laugh and they want to be entertained and they want to, you know, they want to learn something. If he's not analyzing hockey players, then he's analyzing ponies. There are many sides to Eddie Olchek, from his deep roots in Chicago to his national presence, and don't bet against him when it comes to hockey, horse racing, or beating cancer. And there are a few who can weave a yarn like this guy, so Eddie Olchek, tell me a story I don't know. I would have this dream of getting drafted by the Blackhawks, and I would, you know, be ready to go play my very first game in the NHL and uh, you know I would get caught in traffic um, you know the toll booths back then were backed up I was rushing I was going to be late I'm sweating I'm panicking like this was the dream I was having probably I'll say probably eight to ten months out from actually becoming a national hockey leaguer for the first time in October of 1984 so I mean this dream had everything like I said I, I woke up late from my nap the traffic was bad. I got to the old Chicago Stadium parking in gate three and a half. And the security guy there, I think it might still be, I think it was Frankie Tomaselli, who's still doing the same thing right now at the United Center, parking cars for the for the employees and the players of the Blackhawks on, on game nights. And I get to the, you know, I get to the gate and, you know, he's asking me who I am and, you know, where's your ID? And, you know, I didn't have my ID and I was trying to tell him I was, you know, a player and I was just <laughs> frazzled, you know, I went into the rink, you know, uh, they asked me at gate three and a half for my ID. And, you know, I just was right. Re- and I would wake up, like I would just wake up in, uh, in this dream, but, but I would have this dream, George, I'm not going to say I had a three days a week, but pretty damn close. Like it was one of those where I just was like, scared to death and again I I was not drafted yet now that's the key I had not been drafted yet when I was having these dreams well sure enough 
in June of 84, I got drafted. The Blackhawks ended up taking me third overall. And this dream continued. So I went to training camp as a young 18-year-old hockey player. And again, uh, very wet behind the ears and, and naive. And our old trainer, uh, our medical trainer, Skip Thayer, and I said, you know, Skip, you know, I said, I've been having this crazy dream. He goes, well, well, tell me about it. So he really like took a great interest into wanting to know about this dream. So I tell Skip, I go, hey, look, I, I, I wake up late from my nap. There's traffic on the highway. They won't let me into the building because they're telling me Eddie Olchek's already here and they want to see my ID and I've already been to the games and, you know, for practice and whatever. And he goes, oh, wow, that's that's kind of a crazy dream or whatever. So, I mean, I, you know, I just shared that because I felt like, you know, I was already a nervous wreck to be a rookie in the NHL. But so Skip just, you know, kind of takes it in or whatever. And then sure enough, George, I get a chance to play my very first NHL game for the Blackhawks in early October of 1984, and we're playing the Detroit Red Wings. I don't get up late for my nap, but I kind of feel rushed, right? I'm so excited. I'm going to, you know, I'm finally going to live a dream. I'm going to walk up those old, the old staircase at the Chicago Stadium. So I go to pull in where I've been for the last couple of weeks for exhibition games and parking, and everybody knows who I am. And I pull up, and sure enough, the security guy stops me, dead in my track, <laughs> in my car, and he says, hey, where are you going? And I go, uh, I'm here to play the game. He goes, who in the hell are you? And I'm like, my name is Eddie Olchek. And when I said Eddie Olchek, I was like, oh, my God. And he goes, let me see your ID. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm a psychic. I can't <laughs> believe this is happening. And then he goes, no, nah, no, nah, Eddie Olchek's here. He's already here. And I go, no, 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 really, this is me. Don't you remember me? I, I was here. And then the guy kind of looks at my ID, kind of turns around a little bit. Now, I mean, Frankie could have been laughing for all I know, but I'm sitting there and I'm like, if I, I needed some toilet paper because I was scared <laughs> to death. And I mean, I was absolutely losing it. And he turns around and he goes, all right, go ahead. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So I get out of the car. Now look, at, I'm getting ready to go play my first game in the NHL. And I'm like rattled already. I'm absolutely rattled. So I walk in gate three and a half. And the old Andy Frame that used to sit there came over and goes, can I help you? I go, uh, I'm here to play the game. He goes, well, who in the hell are you? I go, I go. Not again. Uh, yeah, again. I go, uh, <laughs> my name's Eddie Olchek. He goes, no, he's already here already. And I go, no, no, look, look at my ID. He goes, I saw him come in earlier. I'm sorry. You're not going to be able to come in. I go, no, wait a second here. Wait, wait a minute. So now I'm like, I've lost it now. I'm like, you got to call the locker room. So he gets on the phone, he calls down to the dressing room. He goes, yeah, all right, go ahead. So I go walking down and I'm like, I, I've been hit a couple of times now where I just have like, I can't believe I've dreamt this because this is exactly what took place in my dream. So I go walking by the training room, George, and there's Skip. And all I hear is, hey, kid. And I turn around and I said, hey, Skip, he goes, did you have any problems getting into the into the rink tonight? <laughs> I, George and I told him. I said, "Skip, I can't believe you did that to me." And then he just gave me a, gave me a wink and he said, "Welcome to the NHL, kid." And then I just walked in and I ended up scoring a first, my goal. I scored I scored my first goal in my very first game that night against the Red Wings. So it wasn't all that bad. We were mentioning a couple of minutes ago about 1984. So before you came to the Blackhawks. 
you were part of an Olympic team that had the unenviable task of following Herb Brooks' Miracle on Ice. So tell me a story about whether the pressure was simply too much for that team to overcome. We could only equal what that Miracle on Ice team did in Lake Placid four years earlier. I mean, you know, we were really in a no-win situation. Every town we went to, uh, every city we went to, we met every dignitary. We had lunches. We met the mayor. We went to see President Ronald Reagan at the White House. Uh, I mean, we, it, was, it was not only a hockey team preparing for the Olympics in 1984 in Sarajevo, but I mean, it was, a, it was a circus. I mean, everywhere we went, everybody related us to the 1980, to the 1980 gold medal team men's Olympic hockey team. And look, it, it, it was great. I mean, it was great exposure for us. It helped prepare me for the National Hockey League, you know, some, you know, eight or nine months later. Uh, so the pressure was there from day one. But, but I mean, personally, I just couldn't believe that I was living a dream of, uh, of trying to follow in the footsteps of that miracle on ice. Because when I was watching that, George, I was watching that as a 13-year-old. And then eventually, four years later, I'm playing in the Olympics representing our country uh, over in Yugoslavia. And as I tell people when, when I get out on the, uh, on the speaker's tour and do banquets, I always talk about, you know, hey, you know, anybody, everybody remember the, uh, the Miracle on Ice team uh, in 1980 and everybody goes crazy and raises their hand. I said, yeah, yeah, that wasn't the team that I played on. We, we, the team that I played on came, came four years later. And I said, you know, we, you know, we finished in seventh place, you know, and there's just like a hush. And I'm like, uh, I tap my microphone and I go, uh, excuse me, uh, do you know how many countries there are in this world? We finished seventh place out of all the countries in the world. And then the people look around and go, wow, yeah, that's pretty impressive. It's got to be over 250 countries in the world. It's like, yeah, that's a good, yeah, way to go. Seventh place. Yeah, all right. And everybody's clapping and cheering. And then I said, well, just for the record, uh, 235 did not come to the Olympics in 1984. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the yeah, the temper people at that point. You spent three years with the Blackhawks and they traded you to Toronto. Mm -hmm. uh, your career exploded. I, you you were a heck of a goal scorer. But then in that fourth season, you were traded to Winnipeg, and that has mm -hmm. a very interesting story that some of us know, but there may be more behind it. <laughs> well, this this is probably the one that uh, gets the uh, gets the cake when it comes to uh, finding out. And all people get uh, in sports get traded, get fired, and and, and every day goings on. George, we know that people get released, people get terminated. So it was November 9th, nineteen ninety. Uh, it was an off day in Toronto. We were getting ready to play, oddly enough, the Blackhawks on the next day on November 10th, Hockey Night in Canada, Saturday night. And my wife, Diana, uh, was very pregnant. And her water broke on that Friday night on November 9th. So, again, no cell phones back then for Eddie Olchuk. So I called our team PR man, uh, Bob Stelick, And I told him, I said, hey, look, I'm not going to be at the morning skate tomorrow but I am going to be at the game. Diana's going into labor. You know, I'll try to keep you abreast of what's going on, but just know and let the coaches know and let our general manager Floyd Smith know that I'm going to be at the game tomorrow night. 
So, of course, Diana doesn't cooperate that Friday night, and now it is very early on Saturday morning, and Diana is still not cooperating. Meaning, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, George, she was probably a one and a half or a 2. But I thought, you know what? It's an 8 o'clock game. We got lots of time. We got 12 hours. You know, I could get to the Maple Leaf Gardens in a matter of about a half hour. So at about 1130, uh, I call to just check in with the Maple Leafs and let them know, say, hey, look, Diana hasn't had the baby yet, but I'm going to be at the game. So at about 2.30, 3 o'clock, George, uh, Diana starts cooperating. So she goes from about a 1 to about a 5 or a 6. And the doctor says, okay, Diana, hold on. Let me put my catcher's mitt on here. We're, we're going we're gonna to have ourselves a baby here. Okay. I'm like, okay, I get the analogy here, doc. So let's go. I got a hockey game to get to. That was pretty much what I was thinking about. So while we're in labor at about 5 o'clock Eastern, a nurse taps me on the shoulder and she hands me a note. And all it says on the note, it says, the Maple Leafs are on the phone. So I look at her, and again, my wife is on her back. Obviously, she's getting ready to have the baby. The doctor is at the foot of the bed. There's all kinds of medical contraptions everywhere. There's people all over the place. And I tell the nurse, tell the Leafs I will be at the game. Diana is having the baby. She leaves. She might have been gone, George, maybe 90 seconds. She comes back. She goes, they really want to talk to you. And I'm like, what do, you, what do I do, George? What do I do at that particular stage? Do I sit there and take the call? Or two, do I sit there and continue to support my wife on giving birth with our second child? Do you have any inkling of what's not. about to happen? I do not. I have no idea. I think they're just calling the check-in on my wife. That's what I think. Hey, are you going to be at the game? We're going to have to play somebody for you. Uh, you know, hey, take the night off. We'll get through the game without you. That's what I was thinking. So, you know, Monty Hall, let's make a deal. I say, ah, screw it. I'm going to go take the call. So, so I sneak out of the room as I'm walking. My wife is going, where are you going? She goes, I, I got to take a phone call. So I walk, out of the, I walk out of the delivery room. I go to the nurse's station, which is maybe, you know, 20 yards away. I get on the phone. They, you know, they unhook the hold button. I get on there and it's Bob Stellick, the PR guy for the Leafs. He goes, hey, Eddie, how's Diana? I go, Bob, she's having a baby. I'm going to be at the game. He goes, well, call us after she has the baby. I said, Bob, I'm not calling. I'm leaving and I'll be at the game. I'm going to play. And then there's a silent pause, an awkward pause, George. And all Bob says, hold on a second. And I'm like, I got to go. She's having a baby. He goes, hold on. The general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs is on the other line. It's Floyd Smith. He goes, Eddie, we hate to do this to you right now. <laughs> we hate to do this to you right now. But I have to inform you by league rules, we have just traded you to the Winnipeg Jets. In Georgia at that time, like my heart stopped. I was like, you got to be bleeping me. You got to be kidding. You just traded me while my wife is in the delivery room giving birth to our child. And you have the balls to call me <laughs> and tell me that I got traded. So I said, you know what? I can't believe it. I'm embarrassed. This is, you know, this is bullshit. 
And, and he said, look, I had to do it. I had to tell you before it became public, whatever. And I just said, ah, you know what? Forget about it. And I just hung up the phone. So now I'm in, I'm stunned now, George. Like I am just absolutely. Now, again, this call was maybe 45 seconds. So I'm standing at the nurse's station. Like, what do I do? What the hell do I do? Now, most people would say is you get your ass back in the delivery room and you have the baby with your wife. I wasn't exactly thinking clear because I'm like, how am I going to do this? So I get on the phone. I call my dad, tell him I was traded. Then I wander back into the delivery room. And it's probably, George, honestly, now it's maybe, maybe five minutes, maybe since the time I left to the time I come back. And again, I'll paint the picture. Doctors in the room, nurses in the room, medical contraptions everywhere. And the lovely and talented Diana Olchek on her back, getting ready to give birth. She, she sees me walk in and she goes, where in the hell have you been? And I'm like, uh, my aunt's sick. And she looks at me, George. She looks at the ceiling. She looks back at me. And I swear, on my last, on my last breath, she says to me, where are we going? Oh, she knew. She knew. George, and I <laughs> said to myself, I said, psychic and pregnant. Oh, my God. Right? So, so I sit there and go, well, now I take a quick look over at the doctor that's at the foot of the bed. And he's got this look on his face like, how are you going to get yourself out of this one, old check? Now, remember, let me, let me go back a little bit. Now, remember, when I left the room, Diana was like a seven or an eight on a scale of one to 10 to have the baby. So she's pretty damn close. So I say, guess. She looks at me, looks at the ceiling. And again, I swear on my last breath, she says, Winnipeg. And I go, oh, my goodness. How in the hell did she know? So all of a sudden, I look back at the foot of the bed, and, I, and I'm shaking my head. I could not answer. I, I just looking at my, I, I'm looking at, at looking at her, and she's and I just shaking my head, George. Like I, I couldn't, I couldn't speak. I'm like, how did you know? That's what I'm saying inside. And she's just, I'm shaking my head. She's shaking her head, and she wasn't shaking her head about anything other than is like, you know what? I can, I can, under, I, I can feel our child saying, you know what, it's not the time right now. And I look at the foot of the bed and I see the doctor and the doctor's pulling off his rubber gloves going, all right, going to put the catcher's mitt away for a while here. This baby isn't going to be born. <laughs> this baby's not going to be born for a while. <laughs> so Diana absolutely shut down, uh, but proud to say uh, about two and a half hours later, uh, Thomas Vincent Olchek came into this world on November 10th, 1990, and uh, got a chance to be with Diana and uh, Tommy that night. And like a hockey player or somebody has a commitment, I got in an airplane the next morning. George flew to Chicago, played my first game as a Winnipeg Chet against the Blackhawks, and then I flew home the next day. Oddly enough, the Winnipeg Jets were playing the Toronto Maple Leafs on Monday night back in Toronto, and then eventually got there, brought Diana and Tommy home, and then I made my way to Winnipeg until they joined me about six weeks later. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. 
If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt, and oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, socks and cubs, stadiums, museums, and the zoos. Plus you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. And remember, Vienna's not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on the free TuneIn app or wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Eddie Olchek on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I have a story to tell about Eddie and me. I was 30 when you began your career with the Blackhawks, and it didn't take me very long to realize you were pretty good at this game, but you were also pretty good at something else. You're a damn good talker. So <laughs> one day I looked at a few of my contemporaries and I joked. I said, you know, one day this guy's going to take our jobs. Well, <laughs> perhaps I was somewhat clairvoyant, but you did, in fact, use your voice and good looks, I might add, and parlayed them into an extremely successful career as an analyst. So tell me a story I don't know about when you actually knew this might be part of your future. Good strip by, Sa- by Saad. He cleared it ahead. Kane racing in. Bisnowski trying to catch him. Kane! He scores! Patrick Kane was sprung by a good pass from Brandon Saad. He went short side high. Kane with his 10th goal in his last 14 games. And the Hawks are in front. Boy, what a backhand. And from our Honda goal replay, the backhand from Patrick Kane. And watch his puck roll on edge, Pat. Right at the last second, it rolls on edge. And Patrick Kane hesitates a second. We're going to get another look at that same exact replay. It was just something that, you know, I started thinking about really before I you know, the last three, four years of my career, George, I really started thinking about, you know, what am I going to do? You know, it's, it's 1996. I had played 12 years in the NHL and it was like, you know, wow, I, you know, yeah, I think I could play forever, but we know that mother and father time are undefeated and I got to start preparing for life after hockey. And I just got an opportunity where I started able to do some, uh, some NHL radio where I was a color analyst and, uh, you know, I did a couple of sidekick uh, radio shows in the morning back in Chicago. I remember on Q101 uh, FM for uh, Murph in the morning. Uh, I did a, a weekly uh, weekly spot with them. I had my own week, uh, you, know, uh, you know, once a week uh, radio show when I was, uh, you know, with the Blackhawks. So I, I just, again, I just enjoyed 
communicating and I found it to be just something that I might want to pursue when life was, you know, of ho- being a hockey player was over. And I think being prepared three or four years earlier really helped me get ready for it. And, you know, I did some, uh, you know, I did some TV work for ESPN and, you know, what's interesting about that, George, is that my first TV appearance appearance for a hockey game was back in, I want to say it was back in 96, 97, where I was on my way out to Denver, Colorado to do a playoff game for ESPN, uh, Red Wings Avalanche, and unfortunately and sadly Columbine happened the mass shooting at the high school at Columbine and we went out there and they canceled the game so my first national tv hit as a broadcaster was about the cancellation of that game uh right after Columbine isn't that something how you can get thrust into something like that yeah, I, I mean, it was just like, I, I couldn't believe it. Like, I was just so myself and Dave Ryan, longtime broadcaster, uh, we had to do a hit uh, for Sports Center at the old uh, McNichols Arena and talking about the cancellation. And, you know, it was unanimous on both sides and doing right by the community and, and the people that we lost in that, in that massacre. And, like that was that was my introduction to television uh, on a national stage uh, to be a part of that, and then they ended up playing the next night. But um, you know, I just think George that it was it was in the calling. You know, I have the the gift of the gab, and uh, I've been very fortunate for the people that I work with and work for, and uh, I've just been very lucky. So uh, it started at the end of my playing career and I'm glad that I was prepared because a lot of players that I know, I mean, you know, you always think you're going to play forever and the money's always going to be there, but uh, you got to be prepared uh, for life after sports or hockey, because uh, as I said earlier, mother and father time are undefeated. You know, the funny thing about all this is when you were done with your playing career is when you began your broadcast career, but then three years later, you're broadcasting with Mike Lang and the Penguins. The Penguins say, uh, Eddie, we would like you to be the head coach, which is the opposite of what people do. So tell me a story <laughs> I don't know about your only coaching stint in this league. I had the bug, and I was I was ready to take the plunge. And my wife was behind me, and I, I was, as you mentioned, I was broadcasting the Pittsburgh Penguins for three years. And at that time, they had not, they did not have a coach in place, a head coach in place for any of the three teams that they were involved in. So sure enough, I go in and have a meeting with Craig. I emphasize to him that um, I would love the opportunity to be considered for the head coaching job in Wilkes-Barre, Scranton and American Hockey League. You know, we have a nice two or three hour meeting. And Craig calls me back and says, "Hey, why don't you fly? You know, why don't you come back to Pittsburgh and uh, you know we'll we'll have a we'll have another meeting." So we go into the meeting, and as as the meeting is going on, George, I can see this meeting is 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 trending towards the big club now. It's trending towards of who we have, what the plan is, where we are, where we're trying to get to, 
And next thing you know, it's like five hours later. Now, full disclosure, I've known Craig Patrick for almost, you know, what, since 84. So this, I mean, I've known Craig Patrick for 20 plus years. The whole time, George, I was thinking about the minor league job. So, but as that interview was going on, we're talking about the plan of the big club, who's there, who we're going to trade, you know, what we're trying to do. And then sure enough, you know, maybe like five or, you know, five or seven days later, Craig called me on the phone and just said, Hey, I just want to let you know, I'm, you know, I'm really considering you for our, for our big club. And I'm like, Oh man, you know, like, again, no experience, NHL team, a team that I had ties with obviously playing and broadcasting. And we had another meeting and then they offered, they offered me the job. And, you know, look, I look back now and say, I would never, I would not trade in me saying yes. I would not trade in the experience that I got, the people that I had met. Proud to say that I'm Sidney Crosby's first coach in the NHL. I'm proud to say I'm Mark andre Fleury's co first coach. I would never trade it in for anything, that experience that I had. And uh, uh, I miss it greatly. I mean, I miss, I miss being around the guys. I miss being in the trenches. I miss the teaching. Uh, I miss seeing the guys enjoy the winning and I miss correcting the, the losing, but um, it's made me a better broadcaster. I think it's made me better in a lot of areas in my life when it comes to having been a coach in the league. And I'm very thankful to Mario and Craig for giving me that opportunity. And uh, it's something that, uh, you know, that I learned a lot from. So after you're dismissed, you begin what has now been a long and rewarding broadcast career with the Blackhawks, albeit not with Pat Foley at first. People may not remember this. He was banished by Bill Wirtz, hired by the Wolves for a couple of years. You're working with Hall of Famer Dan Kelly's son. Mm -hmm. But after that, you're, not, you're united with Foley, and it's been a love fest ever since. So tell me a story, or ten, about working <laughs> with that guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Pat is, uh, I think people could tell the rela I hope, I hope people can tell the relationship that we have on the air. It's exactly the same off the air. The blog is brought to you by Bob Ladoni, their nationwide insurance agent serving the area for 26 years. To join a nation, contact Bob, join Bob.com, and remember, nationwide. That's right, Bob. Wait a minute, who, who does that blog? Bob. Oh. <laughs> Nationwide is on your side. <laughs> I wonder if he skeets and stuff, too, do you think? <laughs> Skeeping and on his blueberry. Yeah. He is and will always be a legend in our town. So when, when you get the opportunity to work with somebody that you admire, and grew up with listening to because look at all I ever did was live, eat, breathe, sleep hockey. And I would listen to Pat and Dale call the games. And here I am in 1984. And now I'm a rookie in the NHL. And, you know, we're playing, playing charity softball games and I get to meet Pat and I get to know him. And, you know, we just hit it off. I mean, we just have the same, I think we have the same personality. I think we, we have the same humor. Uh, sometimes we get off the rails every once in a while, but you know, I think that's what makes us, uh, I think that's what makes us as a tandem so unique. And I think there's a lot of humility with our chemistry. I think there's that, Hey, you know, like, you know, we, we, if we make a mistake or we call the wrong guy or, 
you know, like we were, I think we're as honest as the day is long. I just, that's, I think how we have become just so reliable on one another and know what the other guy's going to do before he does it. And we're there to sell the Blackhawks. We're there to sell, you know, uh, you know, just entertainment because people have a lot of choices. And I think just over the years, uh, whether I was a Blackhawk or not, um, and people may not know this, George, I started my career with the Blackhawks between 84 and 87. And then I ended my career with the Blackhawks mm-hmm. in 98 and 2000. And, and Pat Foley always treated me the same. And I'll be forever grateful for that because look at, we all cross people in our lives that for whatever reason, they become a little too big for everybody and they can't talk to this guy because he plays on another team or he's just another broadcaster or what have you. So our relationship goes back a long, long way. And, and look at when I got a chance to work with Danny Kelly, uh, it was great. Like Danny's a pro. I enjoyed being with him. Um, but when John McDonough was brought in by Rocky Wirtz and they went back and they brought Pat back to where he rightfully belongs, uh, it was instant. Uh, look at, it was a lot of pressure, George, to sit in that chair next to Pat. I mean, it, I'll still, bet it, is. Was. it still is, but I knew, I knew the chemistry he had with Dale. I, look at it's intimate. It was intimidating. Cause I knew, I knew that Blackhawk fans in the past had this love, a love and love affair for Dale and Pat. And when Pat was sent packing and then he came back, I just said, Hey, look at, I'm, I'm going to do the best that I can. And I know Pat is the man, he's the hall of famer and I'm just going to try to slide in and, and have my own style. And uh, we're going to have fun. Like that's what people want. They want honesty. They want humility. I think they want to laugh and they want to be entertained and they want to, you know, they want to learn something. And uh, I, look, it, it is a, uh, I mean, I'm so proud of the relationship. I'm so proud of our chemistry and, uh, it's the greatest compliment is when people stop you in the streets at home or they send you a letter or whatever, just say, you know, we, you know, we, we think you and Pat are the greatest and we love how you have fun and you take us away from the real world. And, uh, and that's our job is to entertain. So I, I feel very, very lucky to be with, uh, the great Pat Foley. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have fun together. We go out for dinner all the time on the road and, uh, uh, we, we love what we do and we feel very lucky and blessed to represent the Blackhawks and hopefully continue to do that uh, for many, many years to, to come. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by the Polina Market. And if you haven't been there, what are you waiting for? It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meat since 1949, and it's only getting bigger and better. From the popular Wagyu steaks to their porterhouse and tomahawk selections, Polina leads the way, and you might just spend hours there perusing the frozen food section. Everything made fresh, including chicken pot pies, pulled pork, and a variety of meatloaves. You like brats? I love them, including their pork variety, which is so juicy and tasty on the grill. And now the Polina Market has seafood and sandwiches from the deli and wine and beer to match anything you buy. Plus, they expanded again, making the in-store experience even better, but you can still order online to pick up. Take my word for it, the Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. Mention you found them through this podcast. 
with Blackhawks and NHL analyst Eddie Olchek on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. It would be easy to say someone has lived a charmed life when you grow up here with aspirations of playing for the Blackhawks, which you did, to the subsequent things that happened to you in your professional life. If only everyone lived a charmed life. So tell me a story I don't know about your battle with colon cancer, which left us all following with riveted and emotional interest. I, I really never had the persona George of or reputation of being a tough guy. Uh, I've always been very sensitive. I've always worn uh, my heart on my sleeve. Uh, I've always been very honest and forthright my whole life. So when I went into my battle with stage three colon cancer back in uh, the summer of 2017, uh, I relied on my faith. I relied on my wife, Diana, and the understanding of uh, this horrible disease does not discriminate. And when I was told on August the 4th of 2017 at 7.07 p.m. that my tumor had been sent out for a biopsy and it came back, uh, stage three colon cancer, when I heard those words from Dr. Scott Strong at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, the first thing I thought of was, okay, well, how long do I have to live? And I was scared. Uh, as I said, I wasn't a tough guy ever. Um, but when I went and met with Mary Mulcahy, my oncologist at Northwestern, we had a 48-minute meeting. I don't know how I remember it was 48 minutes uh, long, George, but we had a meeting, my wife, myself, and Dr. Mulcahy. And the only thing I remember in that conversation was, and I had the thousand yard stare sitting in his office thinking, I'm sick. I've been told I have cancer and I'm getting ready to start chemotherapy. I had the thousand yard stare going. I did not hear any of the conversation until Dr. Mulcahy said, Eddie, look at me. And I looked her in the eyes and she said to me, I am here to treat you. I am here to cure you, not treat you. Do you understand the difference? And I shook my head and I said, okay, so what you're telling me, doc, is I'm gonna go through six months of chemo. I'm gonna trade in six months of hell for 50 more years. Is that what you're telling me? And she says, that is my hope, Eddie. And I said, okay, where do I sign? And I started my treatments, George, on September 11th of 2017, my first treatments, I took two chemos, one at the hospital, and I took one at home for 48 hours. And if anybody, and we're all touched by this horrible disease, but if anybody knows anything about chemo, it has the ability to break you down. It brings you to your knees. Uh, I had terrible side effects from headaches to nosebleeds to neuropathy to blood clots to just going to the bathroom without having to go. Like I would just I would just crap the floor and I was thinking, how am I going to, how am I going to live like this now? But how in hell am I going to get through the next, next six months of this and not even know what's on the other side? So I got the treatment too. And this is probably the most uh, impactful part of my whole journey is I had my second treatment and it brought, it broke me down. 
it, it brought me to my knees. And I just told my wife, I'm done. I quit. And George, I had never quit in anything in my life. Uh, when people told me I would never make the NHL because I was an American kid from Chicago and those, and, and those type of players don't ever make it to the NHL, they told me I would never make it. They told me I would never play on the U.S. Olympic hockey team because I was trying out at 16 years of age. I had people tell me I could never become the first American board lead. I, I would never become the first born American lead analyst on national television in the U.S. to call hockey games. George, when I was down 200 bucks at the racetrack, oh, I'll check that. If I was ever down $2,000 at the racetrack, I was not quitting. I was not going to bail. But the cancer and the chemo brought me to my knees, and I told my wife, I quit. I can't live like this. And I was scared. And my wife grabbed me, and she looked at me, George, and all Diana said is, you got to fight. You got to fight for me. You got to fight for our four kids. And you got to fight for all the people that love you. God, everybody wants to know how's Eddie, so uh, hey, give Carter. us everybody an update. Well, we're, uh, we're in a battle, and uh, we're going through our treatments right now. And uh, I'll have my third treatment on Monday. Uh, it's... Uh, I, the support that I've had, Pat, from you, from the Blackhawk organization, uh, Rocky Wirtz, John McDonough, Jay Blanc, Dr. Michael Terry, who has spearheaded everything for me with all my treatments and all the great folks over at Northwestern Hospital, the support of my, uh, my family, my friends, and uh, all the great Blackhawk fans and all the hockey fans out there and the horse racing fans <laughs> uh, uh, and all the people that... Uh, have grabbed me and sent cards and texts and emails. And we did a lot of crying. We had a moment that lasted 30 minutes. I cried for 35 of it. And I just, I reset, George. I, I reset and I said, you know what? I'm just going to go day to day. I'm just going to go day to day. And whatever happens in six months and we reassess, then I'll worry about that. But all I'm going to do is live day to day. And to tie it all in, when I was going through my cancer battle, George, I was very much at peace. Even though I was scared, even though I was worried, I didn't want to die. Even though all of that, I was still very much at peace. Meaning, I've always let the most important people in my life know how I felt about them. Whether it was my wife, my kids, my parents, my brothers, my closest friends, I've always had the ability, and I don't know where I learned it, I think it's a gift, is to express to somebody, hey, you know what? I just wanna let you know how important and impactful you've been in my life. And if God forbid, if something ever happened, you need to tell me that you know how much you've meant to me. And I've always gotten the same response when I've done that. I, Shut up, nothing's gonna happen. You, you know, what do you, you know, don't talk like that or whatever. But. You know, I just always, I just always did that. I just always had the ability to express to people how lucky and blessed I've been and grateful to have them in my life. And George, that helped me get through. And I will close it this way, is that there are many people out there that are affected by this disease and it has this ability to test you and challenge you in ways that you can never imagine. And just to let everybody know out there, you are way tougher than you ever thought you would. You are way tougher. And the one thing that I proved to myself, George, after going through that is uh, 
uh, Eddie Olchek is way tougher than he ever thought he was, and that helped me get through my toughest battle in my life. You're listening to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman with Eddie Olchek. And I just want to let you know, Eddie, we have approximately tree turdy tree left to go in this interview. <laughs> I know you love horse racing. You are a very, very good handicapper. We've now seen you on national television. So tell me a story when you got hooked on this sport. And what is it? What is it about long shots that must be like scoring a hat trick with you? <laughs> Yeah. Um, when I was, I think I was like 12 or 13 years old, George, uh, an old friend of mine or a friend of mine, his dad was a horse player. He introduced me to horse racing. We, uh, we had an off day of, uh, we were in between practices for hockey in the springtime or summertime. And uh, my pal, Danny Quillis and his dad, Mr. Quill, Tony Quillis, um, he was a horse player. And we went to old Arlington Park racetrack. And we went there and I mean, I fell in love with these equine athletes, these pristine animals and these crazy humans, both men and women getting on the backs of these horses, going 35, 40 mile an hour down the track at Arlington and hearing the late great Phil George F saying, here they come spinning out of the turn. And I, I just was enamored with the, with the, with the human and equine connection like I just thought it was just amazing and you know then you started learning about well wow you know if you pick the right numbers you might be able to turn in you know five bucks into 50 bucks or you know 10 bucks into 100 and whatever so look at at the start you know you're just playing numbers you're playing colors you're playing names you're you know you just whatever so I go up to the window and again I might have had maybe 25 or 30 bucks on me you know whatever and so I go up to the window and I play a couple of, you know, like I play an exact, meaning I got to try to get the exact order of the top two finishers. And the first two races don't go well. And I'm like, well, this really sucks. <laughs> so I get the next race and I, you know, I put a couple of horses together and sure enough, I invested, I think I invested $8 and uh, I hit for 118. It's a good like, return. Wow. Yeah. This is a great ROI here. I mean, I can go for this. This is pretty good. I mean, look at it. I was making, I think I was making like $12 a bag when I was caddying at Midlothian country club at the time. So, I mean, you know, look at, you get 118 bucks in about a minute and 11 seconds. Like this is a hell of a gig. So again, George, my first couple of bets didn't go well. So I went back to the same teller that I had lost at he sold me the winning ticket. So I went back and he puts the ticket through the machine and he goes, Hey kid, how old are you? And I said, well, you didn't ask me how old I was when I lost. And the guy, the number comes up 118 bucks and the guy starts, you know, he pulls out a hundred dollar bill. He pulls out a 10, a five and then a couple of ones. And I figured, you know what? I'm just going to give this guy a couple of bucks for selling me the winning ticket, you know, even though I did all the work and he gave me a quick wink and, uh, George, uh, I've been hook line and sinker, uh, ever since, uh, making my first couple of wagers now to tie it all in. Um, sadly, uh, we lost Mr. Quill. We lost Tony Quillis, the gentleman that was a great hockey manager for me as a kid. 
We lost Mr. Quill to his cancer battle uh, right this last January of uh, 2020. Um, but I am proud to say that right before that was the Breeders' Cup. Mr. Quill was in his battle and we knew he didn't have much time left. And uh, I had given him a few winners over the years and bet some of my picks on TV over the years. And uh, I'm proud to say the, uh, the last pick that I gave Mr. Quill uh, was a winning, one, a winning one before he went up to the uh, horse racing skies. And uh, I feel awfully proud that uh, the gentleman that introduced me to horse racing, uh, I was able to send him off uh, uh, the right way by giving him one last winner. You know, look, tis the law certainly is, uh, you know, is the horse to beat. Three to five, I think, might be a gift. Jeff, uh, when you look at the departure of Art Collector, uh, who was going to be my pick, full disclosure, but uh, three to five might be a gift. Uh, I think he's probably going to go off like more like two to five, but I find this really interesting the way this race has ended up being drawn. You see the horses to the first the first nine on the inside, and then you get to the outside. I would be remiss, Eddie, if I didn't ask you to tell me the story about how you managed to turn this a pick six into a whole lot of money. <laughs> I'm mean, we're talking about a whole lot of money. Yeah. Um, well, I was uh, traveling home from the, uh, I was traveling home, I believe it was back in 2010. Back in 2010, I was traveling home from the uh, Las Vegas Awards for the NHL. And I was flying home and I got home in time and it was a Friday night in June. And I was betting the late races at Hollywood Park, uh, which is no longer there. So they had a pick six carryover meaning. It's like a lottery. Like if, if nobody gets the winning numbers, it carries over. So that's what it was. So that night I get home, I make a $168 investment. So meaning it was a $2 bet. So there were 84 combinations I had with the numbers that I picked for six consecutive races. So I'm watching the races. I'm two for two. My lone pick in the third race has to win. It's the only way that, it, that I have a chance at winning this pick six. And to let people know that the pool had a million five in the pool. So there was a $1,500,000 in the pool. I picked a long shot. The horse was 17 to one. I just liked the way the horse was training. He was coming back quickly. I thought if the jockey rode it the right way, we would have a chance to, you know, to win the race. So sure enough, they're turning for home, and here comes this horse. I think the name of the horse was Streets of Heaven. This horse comes, he looks like he got shot out of a cannon. He wins the race at 17 to 1. So now I'm three for three. So I guess the, the, the analogy would be is, oh, wow. We see the lottery balls drop. We got the first one. We got the second one. Now we got a real obscure number, and boom, it hits. So now you're thinking, wow, I got a shot here. I got a big shot. So sure enough, race four hits, race five hits. Now we're in the last race. There's 10 horses running. I have eight of the 10 horses. You had eight of the 10 horses picked. Yes, in that last race. Month. You can't lose just about. No, no, I can't lose. But the difference between making 25 grand and a million five is all over the board. And I have a eight and 10 chance of turning $168 investment into 25 grand or a million five. So being the, uh, the competitive horse player that I am, and this is very late at night. Again, this is LA time. It's like 10, 15 in LA. 
it's 1215 in Chicago. So I call one of my buddies that's living in New Jersey to share the news. Hey, I'm alive, you know, watch the race, you know, good luck, all that kind of stuff. And I also call a gentleman that most hockey fans would know the name once I say it, who is a horse player extraordinaire as well. I pick up the phone and call Joel Quinville. Mm-hmm. Now, lo and behold, Joel Quinville is on the East Coast. It is 1.15 in the morning. I want to share <laughs> this news with another horse player. I pick, up, I pick up the phone. I call Joel Quinville. On the first ring, Joel Quinville is on the other line. All he says to me, are you alive? Are you alive? <laughs> and I tell him what I tell him what I got. He's excited. He goes, I really like the 10. And that's who I had. I had the 10. He said, I think the 10 going to win. And I think the name of the horse was Suances de España. That's the name of the horse was Suances de España was the name of the horse. He was the 10 horse. So we're watching as a family. The horse goes by. I got four or five of the horses that are coming down the lane. I'm going to win. Like, I'm going to win between twenty-five dollars and $500,000. And sure enough, the 10 horse wins. The one that Joel Quinville said would. Here come the payouts. You got to wait. You got to wait. And sure enough, the $168 investment turns into $500,000. What's your reaction? So for the react well first the action was is i got even george <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then and and then and then i think and then i think according to my kids because i kind of blacked out i think according to my kids uh the lovely and talented diana olchek yells out we're gonna get a pool <laughs> uh which did not happen which did not happen just for the record um the ROI for that night uh, for me, George, was uh, pretty salty and uh, something that I'm very proud of. And uh, I got lucky. Every squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. I like to end all of these interviews with the same question, Eddie. Tell me a story of what you would have been had it not been for hockey. I would have been a baseball player, George. Um, my dad, uh, the real Ed Olchek, believes uh, that I would have been a better baseball player than a hockey player. Um, I loved baseball as a kid. I don't want to say sadly, but I chose this with the support of my family. Sadly, I gave up baseball at 14 years of age to become a hockey player. Uh, I really would have been, really would have been interesting to see if I would have chosen to play two sports a little bit longer and see where it might have taken me. You know, I mean, look, I, I hear the stories of, and know the stories of Danny Age and Bo Jackson and and uh, and, and prime time and, you know, guys like that. Um, I always wonder what might have happened, um, but I I really believe, I, I really do, um, that Eddie Olchek uh, would have been a baseball player if not a hockey player. Thank you so much, Eddie Olchek, for telling me a story I don't know. My thanks to NBC Sports Chicago, WGN-TV, and Jeff Siegel and ExpressBet.com for those memorable highlights. And big-time thanks to T.J. Reeves for his hard work and dedication in putting this podcast on the map. Also to Will Hatzel for some crafty editing. T. 
T.T. Shinkin for her illustrious illustrations, and to Ken Schreiner for always being there. Also to our sponsors, the Polina Market. Please visit them at polinamarket.com and to Vienna Beef, a Chicago institution since 1893. You can find them at viennabeef.com. Please join us for our next effort on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. <laughs>